you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to take them and open up with me to Luke chapter 4. Gospel according to Luke chapter 4. After a couple of weeks in the Psalms, we're returning to our series in the Gospel according to Luke. Uh, This morning looking at verses 31 to 44 uh, in Luke chapter 4. As you're turning there, I'll just remind you of what's been going on in in Luke's Gospel for the last few passages. Uh, Following Jesus' temptation in the wilderness where He was tempted by the devil, uh, the Lord began His ministry in His hometown in the city of Nazareth. And that might seem like the natural and good place to start for Jesus' ministry, His hometown. Uh, But as we saw a few weeks ago, Jesus' hometown rejected Him. Uh, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, Jesus said. The people of Nazareth failed to see their need for a Redeemer, and as a result, they they ran the Messiah out of town. And as far as Luke is concerned, Jesus, Jesus never went home again. He never returned to Nazareth. In today's passage, however, Jesus' ministry receives quite a different response, at least initially, and it happens in the city of the little village. It's not a city. It's a village of Capernaum, which is a little fishing village on the Sea of Galilee. Receives quite a different response in Capernaum, at least initially. So, that's where we're at, and let's give our attention now to God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 31 of of Luke chapter 4. And Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and He was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at His teaching, for His Word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power He commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about Him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And He arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to Him on her behalf. And He stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to Him, and He laid His hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But He rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that He was the Christ. And when it was day, He departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought Him and came to Him and would have kept Him from leaving them But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to bless us as we listen and consider his word together. Let's pray. Father, we do ask you now that you would please give us grace through Your Holy Spirit, that You would illuminate our hearts and minds, that we would understand the Word of God as revealed here in Luke chapter 4, and that we would believe, Father, and obey what it is that You have 
revealed to be true in Christ. We ask, Father, for the glory of Christ. We ask, Father, for our good in Christ. We pray, Lord, that You would grant us discernment. Please keep me from error. Please help us, God, to grow today in godliness. Help us to leave today having experienced again Your grace given to us through the Word of God as it reveals Jesus Christ. And we pray in His name. Amen. But when it comes to storytelling, it seems that nothing beats a battle of good versus evil. Think about some of the most well-known and well-beloved stories that you may know. When I was a kid growing up, I I loved Star Wars. Well, I I don't have to say it in the past tense. I love Star Wars. (laughs) In part because it so vividly captures the age-old drama of the ill-equipped good guy doing battle with the seemingly all-powerful bad guides, good versus evil. Today, my own kids love C.S. Lewis's uh, The Chronicles of Narnia because it's thrilling to them to hear how Aslan, the good king, is on the move to restore and reign over his, his world. It's good versus evil. Or even think about our culture's uh, fascination with superhero movies that I don't really get, but think about how much the culture is fascinated with superhero movies, which are surefire moneymakers. What is a superhero movie other than a recasting of the classic good versus evil showdown? We all know how it ends, yet we keep going. What is a superhero movie other than good versus evil? You see, when it comes to storytelling, we're almost irresistibly drawn to the clash of good guy versus bad guy. Now, why is this the case? Why is it that across time and culture, the same theme so consistently shows up? Or, to ask it another way, why does the battle of good versus evil resonate so deeply within the human heart? Well, it might surprise you, friends, but the answer is actually theological. The answer has to do with God. All of these fanciful stories that we create are really echoes of the one true story. The good news that God Himself is on the move. That the good King, God Himself, is on the move, setting things right, overturning the forces of darkness, and bringing His people into a kingdom of unspeakable beauty and goodness and truth. We're drawn to the the battle of good versus evil because quite simply, we're made in the image of God. And as people made in God's image, our hearts long to know that this broken world is not the end of the story in which we inhabit. We long to know that there is a hero, a deliverer, a good guy, an ultimate good guy, who will overturn all that's wrong and defeat everything that is frightening. And our passage this morning in Luke chapter 4 is a compelling picture of the battle in this one true story. Here in Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus defying the forces of darkness in order to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Whether it's spiritual evil or physical brokenness, Jesus wins in Luke chapter 4. He rules. His power is His Word. And His purpose is to restore what Satan and sin have devastated. It's the ultimate battle, in other words. It's the one true story. So if our hearts resonate with the clash of good versus evil, then then Luke 4 actually tells us why. It's because the Gospel, the good news of Christ, is that one grand true story that answers humanity's 
greatest need. Remember, friends, all truth is God's truth. So whenever we see something true in the world that resonates with our heart, it's telling us something about God. And the Gospel of Jesus Christ is that one true story that answers humanity's greatest need. In terms of a theme, this passage here in Luke 4 really revolves around two words. Just two words. Authority and priority. Authority and priority. Jesus' authority is on display, which is why Luke highlights miracles for the first time in his Gospel account. And then with that authority, Luke also intends to show us the priority that drives Jesus' ministry. Luke 4 is a spiritual battle. And those are the two themes. Authority and priority. Those are the, the poles around which the action revolves, you could say. So, for our time together, I want very simply just to draw to your attention two takeaways. Each one coming from one of those theme words. Two takeaways. First, we need to see how the authority of Jesus demands our allegiance. And second, we need to see how the preaching of Jesus defines our priorities. Authority and priority. Let's begin then in verse 31 here and following where the authority of Jesus demands our allegiance. The authority of Jesus demands our allegiance. As we said at the outset, the scene for Jesus' ministry now shifts to Capernaum. But while Jesus has moved to a different town, His ministry continues to focus on the same thing, teaching the Word of God. Notice again Jesus' practice of ministry. Verse 31, And Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and He was teaching them on the Sabbath. This is the key, friends. While the passage gives us the first of Jesus' many miracles, it's actually Jesus' teaching that remains the focus. You see, Jesus is a preacher of God's Word before He is a doer of mighty deeds. It's the Word of God that remains the heartbeat of Jesus' ministry. And in verse 32, we get a glimpse of what Jesus' teaching was like. Notice again the description that Luke gives us of Jesus' teaching. Verse 32, And they were astonished at His teaching. For, or we could say because, His Word possessed Authority. Now notice what stands out about Jesus' ministry, friends. It's the power. It's the gravity. It's the authority of His Word. Friends, this is the first feature of Jesus' authority that we need to understand. His authority is unique. It's unique. That's what gets the crowd's attention. You see, in Jesus' day, it was common for Jewish scribes to teach but their teaching always came with a footnote, so to speak. It always came with a reference to someone else. When the scribes taught, they were always citing other scribes. You know, so-and-so said, or such-and-such passage says. They were always citing other sources. But that's not the case with Jesus. Jesus' teaching has no footnotes. He dealt with God's Word directly and authoritatively. Again, this is the key. Jesus' authority is inherent in Himself. His Word has power because He speaks it. His Word carried the weight of reality and the, the weight of truth within itself. Now, in the Bible, 
Do you know the only other instance of this kind of authority? There's only one. And it's God Himself. The very first passage of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, this is what we encounter. God speaks with authority because He is God. His Word is authoritative and what He says is accomplished. You see, that's the kind of authority that Jesus displays here in Capernaum. It's not simply the authority of an expert. It's not simply the authority of someone who has read a bunch of good books. No, this is divine authority. Jesus speaks as God would speak because Jesus is God in the flesh. There's a second feature to Jesus' authority that we need to understand. Not only is His authority unique, Jesus' authority is also unrivaled. You'll notice in verse 33 that suddenly Jesus is joined in the synagogue by a man who has the spirit of an unclean demon. Friends, this is a good time to remind you that the spiritual realm, while often unseen, is very, very real. Satan is real. His demonic forces are real. And while I can't answer every question about how the spirit of an unclean demon afflicts the soul of a man, I can tell you it's real. The spiritual realm is is very, very real. And here in verse 33, we see Jesus come face to face with this evil. And make no mistake, friends, this is a clash of authority. It's a clash of authority. Notice what the demonic spirit says in verse 34. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now in the flow of the chapter, this moment is a direct challenge to Jesus. The demonic spirit is challenging Him. Verse 32 highlights Jesus' authority, and then almost immediately, verse 34 that authority is put to the test. Who is more powerful? Jesus or the forces of darkness? Who will win? You see, it's good versus evil. And listen, friends, the demonic spirit understands what's at stake. Look again at verse 34. When the spirit says, what have you to do with us? That's not so much a question as it is a challenge or a taunt. That's like saying, why are you bothering me, Jesus? Don't you know that if you come after me, you destroy the man too? You see, it's a challenge. Now, we don't know how long this man suffered under the demonic spirit, but it's clear that the spirit has mastered him. It's clear that the spirit has control of the man on some level. So this is a showdown of authority. This is a clash of power. And the demonic spirit knows what's at stake. But then notice how quickly the battle is over. If this is a clash of authority, it's a rather pathetic clash. Verse 35, But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. Friends, at the risk of oversimplifying this, what did Jesus use to defeat the demonic spirit? He used His Word and only His Word. There were no spells uttered. There were no incantations of deliverance. No mystical potions administered. What's more, there's no prolonged wait. It doesn't take all night with everyone wringing their hands as to who's going to win. None of that. With His Word and only His Word, Jesus defeats the demonic spirit. 
And He does so in a way that does not harm the man. Did you catch that, friends? Not only is Jesus' Word powerful, it also does good to people who are in need. Now, what's significant about this moment? This is the first miracle that Jesus performs in Luke's Gospel. It's the first one that we have recorded. So what's the significance? Well, at the big picture level, the the casting out of the demon is proof that the kingdom of God has come in and through Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is the truth that God even now is reigning redemptively over all things for the good of His people. In the Bible, the kingdom of God is both um, already and not yet present. It's already here in Jesus Christ and it's not yet fully consummated because the end of the ages has not yet come. The casting out of the demon is Jesus' proof that the kingdom of God has come. This is actually something we'll see throughout Luke's Gospel. The forces of darkness are now being defeated. God's work of redemption has begun. And it is all happening because of this man, Jesus. The ministry of Jesus is the dawning of the kingdom of God. It's the first rays of sunlight of the new creation coming into this present darkness. So when the demonic spirit leaves the man, that's what you should think as you read, the kingdom of God has come, and it's come in Jesus Christ. On another level, however, this this miracle has a more immediate purpose, at least in this scene. The miracle confirms Jesus' authority. The miracle confirms the authority of Jesus' Word. You know, when we read these kind of passages, we tend to run to the miracles first. We want to ask all the question about the miracles first because we think that the miracles are the point. But Luke would tell us otherwise, friends. The miracle is important because it confirms Jesus' Word. I mean, just look at the order in the passage. What do we find Jesus doing first? Teaching. And then the miracle comes. The miracle vindicates Jesus' claims. In other words, what should get your attention in this passage is not the demonic spirit, but the one who defeats the spirit with only His Word, Jesus Christ. He's the point. But don't take... The crowd is amazed at the authority of Jesus' Word. And the miracle proves the point. Jesus' authority is unrivaled. Not even the forces of darkness can stand up to Him. Even so, there's one more feature of Jesus' authority that we need to see. His authority is unique. He speaks with the authority of God. His authority is unrivaled. Not even spiritual darkness can stand up to Him. But then, verses 38 and 39, we see that Jesus' authority is also unlimited. It's unlimited. Notice what happens in verse 38. Again, the scene shifts very quickly from the synagogue to the house of Simon Peter. We haven't met Peter yet. It's the first appearance of him in the Gospel. His mother-in-law is ill with a fever, a high fever. And the situation is serious. Luke, the doctor, doesn't give us any details on what's wrong with her. But in the first world, first century world, uh, fevers were often dangerous. There were likely many other symptoms afflicting this, this woman. And considering what just happened in the synagogue, the family brings Jesus to their house and they clearly expect that He'll be able to do something. And that's exactly what happens. Notice verse 39. And He stood over her and rebuked the fever. And it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Friends, did you catch that it's the same word 
here in verse 39 that Jesus used in verse 35. Jesus rebuked the spirit, verse 35, and Jesus rebukes the fever, verse 39. You see, the repetition makes the point. The miracles are directing us to the authority of Jesus' word. With unrivaled authority, Jesus speaks and demons depart. And now with unlimited authority, Jesus speaks and fevers flee. His Word is unlimited. The authority of His Word is unlimited. Now notice what we have then here. Notice how these first two miracles bring together the spiritual realm and the physical realm. If you think about it, this is a fitting picture of what Jesus came to do. He has the authority to defeat the works of the devil which began back in the garden with Adam's fall into sin. That's the spiritual realm. And Jesus has the authority to to heal sickness, which is also rooted in humanity's fall into sin from the garden, the physical realm. So both ends of humanity's trouble, spiritual oppression, physical brokenness, both ends, Jesus has the authority to make them right. Jesus has the authority to restore and even overturn the effects of the fall. The effects of sin in this world. Whatever the realm, Jesus' authority prevails. And that's the key here, friends. The kingdom of God is coming in Jesus Christ. The promise of redemption is even now being realized in Jesus Christ. Verse after verse, scene after scene, miracle after miracle. Luke is wanting us to see this truth, friends. Jesus speaks with unique, unrivaled, unlimited authority. And that means the kingdom of God is coming in and through this man. And therefore, friends, Jesus demands your allegiance. Therefore, Jesus demands your allegiance. That's really the grand application of this passage. Remember, doctrine, the truth about Jesus, doctrine always serves discipleship, following Jesus. The doctrine serves the discipleship. Jesus has all authority, therefore, He demands your allegiance. Do you see how it works? We've seen the authority of Jesus so clearly in these verses, and in response, the Word of God is urging us Listen to this man. Listen to him. Don't breeze past thinking that you've heard this story before. Slow down and listen. Or to use an old word, slow down and reckon with this man. If Jesus possesses this kind of authority, and He does, then the most important question facing every person on the globe today is, am I living right now in submission to Jesus and to His Word? If He has the authority of God that cannot be rivaled or stopped, then the most important question is, am I living in submission to this man and to His Word? Friends, this begins with the submission of faith. Are you trusting today that Jesus alone has the authority to save you from your sin? Perhaps you're here today and you're not a Christian. You've never trusted in Jesus Christ to save you from the wrath of God. You've never taken that initial step of bowing before Him in submission and confessing your sin and trusting that He alone has the power to save. If that's you, then God's Word is urging you today to respond to Jesus with the submission of faith. Confess your sin to Jesus Christ. Acknowledging that you have broken God's commandments and that you deserve the wrath of God. 
And then with a repentant heart, trust that Jesus provides the salvation that you need. Trust that this same Jesus, who speaks with such authority, went on to suffer and die at the cross, bearing the wrath of God that you deserve. Friend, if you don't know the Lord Jesus today by faith, then God's Word is calling you right now to respond with the submission of faith. For those who are Christians this morning, God's Word is also calling us to respond with the submission of faithful obedience. Faithful obedience. This is really the inescapable conclusion for Christians from this passage. If Jesus has this kind of authority, then our lives, day in and day out, must be submitted to Him in faithful obedience. Taking in God's Word. Confessing sin. Growing in godliness. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Friends, those are things that Jesus commands us to do. They're not just neat little habits that we can do to tell the world that we're much more moral than they are. Those are, act- those are actions that demonstrate the authority of Christ over His church. Living in submission to His Word. And as, he, as His body, He calls us with the same authority to live out His Word. Are we doing that? Are you doing that? Not perfectly, of course, but consistently. Listen, I think it's a, good, it's a good kind of imaginative scenario to put yourself in. If someone were to have footage of your life for a week, let's say, would there be enough evidence from that week of your life to convince them that you believed in the authority of Jesus Christ? If someone could see how we lived for a week, would there be enough to demonstrate that we believe Jesus is Lord and that we live under His Word? Or would my daily life call into question what this passage so clearly teaches, that Jesus has unique, unrivaled, and unlimited authority? It's a good good exercise to engage in. Luke 4 clearly presents Jesus as authoritative. So, how do you and I respond to and display and submit to that authority? That's really the key. Let's transition now to that second theme around which this passage moves. That's the theme of priority. We've seen how the authority of Jesus demands our allegiance, but beginning in verse 40, we now see how the preaching of Jesus defines our priorities. The preaching of Jesus defines our priorities. Luke wants us to understand that these first two miracles from Jesus are not isolated incidents. Notice how broadly the situation expands. Verses 40 and 41, it's the end of the day, but that doesn't stop people from bringing the sick and the oppressed to Jesus. And the type of illnesses doesn't matter. Jesus heals them all. Person after person is brought to Jesus in verse 40 says that Jesus dealt with each one. I take that to be instructive of how Jesus handled His ministry. He could have just given a single command and healed all of the diseases, but He went person by person and dealt with each one. It's a little snapshot of the compassionate heart of the Savior. He shows care and He helps those in need. And verse 41 says that this broad ministry applied to those who were oppressed by demons as well. Luke tells us, that many were delivered from evil spirits. And you'll notice that the demonic spirits very clearly understand 
who they are dealing with. You catch that in verse 41. The demons cry out with the truth. You are the Son of God. They're, they're telling the truth. Think about that, friends. These demons know the truth, but they do not submit to the truth. They confess who Jesus is, but they do not trust Him. You know, this is one of the clearest places in the Bible of the fact that merely knowing the truth is not the same thing as saving faith. You can assent to the facts of the Gospel like these demons do without actually trusting the Lord of the Gospel, Jesus Christ. I wonder how many professing Christians today are in the same situation. Maybe they were raised in church, attending Sunday school, and they can give you all the right answers. They know the facts, in other words. But at the heart level, they don't actually trust in Christ. Their confidence before God is not based on the reality that Jesus obeyed the law in their place, that He died on the cross in their place, that He rose from the dead for their justification before God. You see, friends, merely assenting to the facts of the Gospel is not nearly the same thing as trusting the Lord of the Gospel. And so I would just urge you to consider this morning, is, is my, ask yourself, is my trust, my, my confidence, my hope rooted in Jesus' work for me in my place on my behalf? Even demons know the truth But a Christian is someone who delights and cherishes and trusts in the truth. There's a difference. You'll notice though in verse 41 that Jesus does not allow the demonic spirits to testify about Him. He tells them to be silent. What's that about? Well, Luke doesn't tell us exactly. He doesn't give us a reason why. Perhaps Jesus is concerned that misguided messianic expectations not trouble His ministry. Most of the Jewish people in Jesus' day expected a political Christ who would overthrow the Romans with the sword. So if this demonic testimony spreads, perhaps people will get the wrong idea about the kind of Savior Jesus came to be. Or perhaps more simply, Jesus doesn't want the primary testimony about Him to come from demons. That seems more likely. Again, Luke doesn't tell us precisely, but that shouldn't stop us from recognizing the fact that even the forces of darkness know the truth. Isn't that staggering that the evil one right now knows the truth? He just hates it. It's sobering to me. Now, with such a broad and miraculous ministry, it's not really surprising that the people in Capernaum want Jesus to stick around. Notice verse 42. And when it was day, Jesus departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought Him and came to Him and would have kept Him from leaving them. Again, this is not surprising. Wouldn't you want a guy who can heal all kinds of diseases to stick around your town? I would, unless I was a doctor. I want him to stick around. So by all means, the people want Jesus to stay. And that might even seem like a good idea. Surely there are more needy people in Capernaum. So why not stay and do more good things there? But that's not what Jesus does. Notice verse 43. But Jesus said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Now catch what Jesus is saying here, friends. He's making two very significant points. Two very significant points. First of all, Jesus reminds us that He lives 
in submission to the will of God. Jesus lives in submission to the will of God. Did you catch the end of the verse? Jesus says, I was sent. I was sent for this purpose. Well, sent by whom? God. The Father, of course. It's the Father's will that defines Jesus' life. And notice, brothers and sisters, that Jesus willingly submits to the will and authority of God. Jesus willingly submits to God. Now, I hope hope that you see the juxtaposition here of authority and submission from the same guy in the same passage. Authority and submission. On one minute, Jesus is casting out demons and healing every kind of disease with only His Word. And then the next minute, He says, I must obey my Father. Authority and submission in the same man. Jesus has authority because He is God. And Jesus submits to the Father because He is God's Son. Both of them, authority and submission, both of them together in one man. This is very, very instructive, friends. This should remind us that submission to the authority of God is never a sign of weakness. Submission to the authority of God is never a sign of weakness. Jesus is the mightiest man who has ever lived. No one is mightier than this man. And He willingly submitted to the authority of another. He willingly placed Himself under the will of His Father. Submission to the authority of God is never a sign of weakness. You know, this world will tell you that any kind of submission to authority makes you small-minded and perhaps even a servant. This world will tell you that you have to throw off authority and throw off obedience in order to claim your place as truly free. But Jesus would tell us otherwise, brothers and sisters. Jesus would show us otherwise. Jesus demonstrates here with His life That true flourishing, listen to me now, true flourishing is not found in throwing off submission, but in embracing it. Embracing the authority of God. And putting yourself under it, even when it's costly. And notice that Jesus doesn't do this begrudgingly. He doesn't say, yeah, I'd like to stay, but you know, God is telling me i got to go, and so I guess I'll go. He doesn't do that. He's not begrudging. He's not grumbling about having to do the Father's will. He's not making any apologies. He's not giving any caveats. He's glad. Jesus is glad with gladness in His heart. He is ready and willing to follow His Father even when it is costly. Listen, friends, that's true human flourishing. That's what it looks like for for people and for human beings to bloom and to bear fruit in the goodness of God's world. It's not found in throwing off authority. It's found in embracing it. One of the most insidious lies in our culture is this idea that flourishing means doing what I want, when I want, with whomever I want. But friends, that's a recipe for slavery, not freedom. Doing whatever I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want, leads me to death and destruction and shackles. Submitting to the authority of God leads to life. His commands are not burdensome, the Apostle John tells us. 
They lead to life. So the Lord Jesus here, when He says, I have to go for I was sent for this purpose, when He submits Himself to the will of God, He is showing us, friends, what it means to flourish as people made in God's image. And it comes through submission to the will and purpose of God. So, let's be countercultural, brothers and sisters. Listen, to me. Christians have always needed to be countercultural. And for the last several decades, we've bought into this mistaken idea that we could just be just like the world while winning the world. That doesn't work. You have to be countercultural, right? So, let's be countercultural. Let's be people who take the very radical step of living in clear and joyful submission to the Word of God, even when it's costly. Let's make this true in our homes where husbands and wives, dads and moms follow the pattern of the Bible more than the culture. Let's make it true in our workplaces where we, we reject uh, mere, uh, strategies of mere self-advancement in favor of godly character that honors God and neighbor even if it means we don't get promoted. And let's make this true in our church where we take God's Word seriously even the parts that the world might consider backward or obsolete. Perhaps the most radical uh, countercultural step that a church can make is not apologizing for the Bible. That's a recipe for true human flourishing. I'm on the verge of another sermon, so I'm going to wrap this part up. That's true human flourishing. It comes in submission to the will and word of God. That's the first significant point Jesus makes. He submits his life and ministry to the authority of God. The second point that Jesus makes here is that preaching the gospel is central to his earthly ministry. Preaching the gospel is central to his, early, his earthly ministry. It's very striking, friends, that Jesus does not say that he came to do miracles. He doesn't say, I must go to these other towns for I need to heal people there. It's very striking that he does not say he came to do miracles, he came to preach the gospel. Jesus must go on to other towns not because He has to heal, but because He has to preach. Now, will Jesus heal people in those towns? Yes, He will. But even then, the miracles serve the Word, not the other way around. The miracles confirm the message. And that's why Jesus has to move on because He must continue preaching the Gospel of the Kingdom of God. He must continue to proclaim that the redemptive power of God has broken into this world and that through Jesus, God is defeating darkness, destroying the works of Satan, and delivering those in need. And my point here is very simple, brothers and sisters. This is what I want us to see. If preaching the good news was the central task of Jesus' earthly ministry, then proclaiming the Gospel must be central to our lives as well. If it was central to Jesus, then it has to be central to us. As Christians, we are followers of Christ. We are His disciples. And a disciple is someone who walks in the way of the Master. We're going to look at this more next week in Luke 5. A disciple is someone who walks in the way of the Master. So how did our Master walk? He proclaimed the good news. How then must we walk by making the good news central to our lives as well. But I'm not involved in full-time ministry, you say to me. But that's actually not the point, brothers and sisters. You don't have to be in full-time ministry to make proclaiming the Gospel central to your life and calling. In fact, you'll probably have more opportunities for the Gospel than someone who is in full-time ministry. i got to go look for lost people. 
The point here is about living each day with what we might call gospel readiness. Gospel readiness. In each situation, I'm ready to speak about the good news of Christ. And in each situation, I am living in a way that displays the hope of Christ. The Apostle Peter talks about being ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. What is that hope? It's the Gospel. It's the resurrection of Christ and our resurrection in Him. And Peter assumes that Christians are living in a way that makes our hope clear. That's Gospel readiness. You don't have to know all the answers, but you need to be ready. And that's what Jesus is calling us to pursue here. His priority was proclaiming the Gospel, and as His followers were called to live with that same priority. You see, this, this, is, this is the one true story, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the good news that Jesus saves, saves us from the evil of our sin, and it's the good news that He calls us to now join Him in the battle to carry the Gospel message to the ends of the world as well. It's, it's the one true story of God. And amazingly, brothers and sisters, we have a part to play alongside our Lord and Savior. So perhaps this week, just a good practical takeaway is that you could pray for God to open your eyes to one opportunity to make the gospel clear in, in life this week. There, the opportunities are there. Will we be ready and faithful? Authority and priority. Those are the themes. Jesus' authority triumphs over evil and His message now defines our priorities including how we live each, each day. But as we go, I pray these themes would mark not only this passage, but also our lives and our church. And so we'll go with this. May God grant us grace to live each day under the life-giving authority of Jesus, and may God grant us faithfulness each day to make the good news of God's kingdom now revealed in Jesus Christ to make that good news known. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You that His authority is unique and unrivaled and unlimited and that He speaks with the very authority of God. We ask, Lord, for the grace to submit our lives to Him. And we ask also, Father, for the grace to use our lives to make Him known. Father, please bring glory to Your Son through and in our church to the praise of His name we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.